and we are going to uh, continue our study tonight on, on just kind of going through the land of Israel and acquainting ourselves with, with the land. Uh, I mentioned uh, a fellow by the name of Bargill Pixner, who uh, was a scholar in residence uh, in, in Israel for a number of years. I think he ended his, uh, his, his life here on earth uh, while still in Israel and, and studying and writing about the life of Jesus in the northern Galilean ministry as well as his ministry in the south. And he, <coughs> he talked about the, uh, the land being the fifth gospel. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the fifth gospel to him was the land. The land, when you understand the geography, when you understand the topography of the land, it helps to bring out the text. And tonight we're going to look at a couple of different places. We're going to look at Mount Tabor. There's just a, we're not going to spend very much time there. We're going to spend the, 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 uh, probably the lion's share of our time in Caesarea Philippi tonight. <coughs> Need to move the uh, the cursor over. Move the cursor all the way over to the right. To the right. We can, yeah. <laughs> and it is on. Robert is hustling back there. Now he's running. <laughs> what you're actually looking at right there is the cave at Caesarea Philippi there in the northern part of uh, the country. Oh, hey, there we go. Perfect. Let's give a round of applause to our folks. <clears throat> as, as you can see, up here on the map, uh, we're going to look first at Mount Tabor, and then we'll look secondly, spend most of our time up in the region of Caesarea Philippi, which is the area uh, at the foot, the southwestern slope of Mount uh, Hermon. Uh, as you can see, Mount Tabor is an 1800, it's a little bit more than that, 1800 a foot high mountain that's out in the middle of nowhere it's it's on the eastern side of the Jezreel Valley as you come upon uh, Mount Tabor you're, there's actually this valley that's that just kind of spreads out in front of you and it's absolutely gorgeous with all the agriculture that's taking place and then there's this round mountain that just kind of raises up out of the landscape you're about 11 miles west of the Sea of Galilee and you're not too far from Nazareth in fact uh, 
uh, the first mountain that you see as you're kind of coming into this region. On the other side of that mountain is Nazareth. And then as you travel more, you know, further down the highway, you come to Mount Tabor. And so we're actually taking this as we're speeding along at about a, uh, 100 kilometers an hour. That's kilometers per hour, which is 62 miles an hour. So we're not going that fast. But you can see that we're, <laughs> we're traveling at a clip. And that is Mount Tabor as you come upon it as you're heading east towards the Sea of Galilee. Here's a better picture of it where you can see the Jezreel Valley out in front of it. And it's just basically this big gigantic dome that rises 1,800 feet out of, out of the ground. Now, Mount Tabor shows up in a couple of places in the Bible. And it's always in reference to, uh, to something that's happening to Israel. The, in the main, the, uh, the references to this mountain are in the Old Testament. In, uh, in Judges chapter 4 is one of the, the first places that you read about it. In, in Judges chapter 4, we're during that time of the Judges where Deborah is, is a judge. She has a general by the name of Barak, and he is fighting an enemy of the people of Israel by the name of Sisera. And you know the story of Sisera in jail and the tent peg in the forehead and, and all of that uh, there in Judges. It's not you know, one of the, the, uh, the, the nicer cleaned up stories in the Bible. But in this particular <coughs> chapter, you have uh, Deborah calling Barak, or Barak to her to tell him to go ahead and to take his 10,000 men and to attack Sisera and his chariots. And the reason that this is kind of interesting is, is that um, you have the Israelites kind of up on this mountain and you have uh, Sisera and his army with the chariots out on the plain. And the reason that the Israelites are up on this mountain is because it's hard for the chariots to get up the mountain. It's a, it's a safe place, and any time that they want to head up the mountain, they can just roll the rock, rocks down on top of them. Well, there is a point where uh, uh, Deborah tells Barak that the Lord has gone ahead of you. It's like verse 14 of Judges chapter 4. The Lord has gone ahead of you. Go ahead and attack Sisera and his army and, and defeat them. And what most of the scholars believe is that there was a river, uh, the Kishon River, that was very, very close to this area where Sisera was, that the Lord flooded that area, making the, the, the chariots inoperable, giving the armies of Israel the opportunity to defeat an army that was actually better equipped for warfare than they were. Um, when you look at this mountain, too, it, it just, you, you don't miss it. It, it's like uh, most mountains, when you, when you drive up to them, you see them a long time coming. And what is sort of significant about this particular mountain is that it just rises up in the middle of nowhere. And it's stark, and it's, it's an unbelievable uh, sign of, of just earthly strength in the sense that this mountain has been around for a long time, and nothing has been able to beat it down. It stands alone. It is powerful, and it is mighty, while everything else around it has been flattened out. And so Mount Tabor in the minds of many Israelites becomes a symbol for, for strength and for power and for majesty and being magnificent. And Jeremiah chapter 46 verse 18, As surely as I live, declares the king, whose name is the Lord Almighty, one will come who is like Tabor among the mountains, like Carmel by the sea. And what is interesting about Jeremiah in this prophecy talking about Tabor is that it's unmistakable. When you drive up on it, it's... You know, it's not like there's a rocky mountain range and you've got all of those collegiate peaks and you're trying to fig figure out which one is which. This mountain, as you come up to it, it stands alone and it is, you will not miss it. And that is one of the, and because it is so great and so high while everything else around it has been flattened down. 
And this is what Jeremiah is trying to say. This one who comes in the name of the Lord Almighty is going to be unmistakable. He's going to be majestic. He's going to be gigantic. And there's no way that you are going to miss him. One, and why we tie this to Caesarea Philippi tonight, and we're kind of done with Mount Tabor right now, and, and again, you know, just understanding the topographical significance of Tabor, it makes sense of what Jeremiah is trying to say in the Scripture. This is unmistakable one that's coming. But one of the other significant pieces to the history of Tabor is that a lot of people, uh, there have been at least three or four great names in church history of the church fathers who believed that Mount Tabor was the place where the, uh, the transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17 took place. Uh, I think it's always possible because the mountain is never named specifically. But I think that this next area is actually where the Mount of Transfiguration took place. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about Caesarea Philippi for uh, for a moment. <coughs> and we'll talk a, a little bit about the Transfiguration here in a couple of minutes. But uh, as you enter into Caesarea Philippi, which is at the, um, uh, at the foot of Mount Hermon, there's, there's a national park there. And a lot of times people ask, you know, what is it like? You go see these sites and you just wander around. And the answer to that is sometimes, but it's not until you have an opportunity to be instructed. Uh, this is our, our tour guide on this last trip. His name is Yuval. A uh, very, very interesting individual. He, you know, he and I kind of share a lot of the same history. He's a 60 baby. I'm a 61 baby. We've seen a lot of the, the same history together. Really super guy. Um, became a Christian after uh, after going into the tour guiding business his father had been in it now he was in it he kept uh, talking about the the biblical sites uh was uh, was very much a a faithful uh, uh, uh practitioner of judaism uh was a was a very faithful uh, israeli had his bar mitzvah at the western wall which makes it kind of special for for the the the, the young men of israel and he kept telling the stories over and over and over again, and reading the texts in the Bible, especially the New Testament texts that were the background to these, these, these places. And then he uh, created a relationship over the years with a lot of American ministers. And through the years, it just began to make sense to him. And so we caught him at a time after he had given his life to Christ and had become a Christian. And when he talks about these places, there's just a real, a, a, a real fervor and excitement and enthusiasm about him. Uh, you remember Wayne Rushing went with us. Rain was taking copious notes uh, all the times that we stopped to, uh, to see these sites. Uh, in the back with the sunglasses and the, the hat and kind of a, a gray shirt is uh, my son Jordan. And next to him is Frank Stepp, one of the guys that goes to, with me to Brazil to minister to missionaries down there every other year. Uh, the place where Mount Hermon is located and the place where Caesarea Philippi is located is a place called Panias, P-A-N-E. E-A-S, sometimes you find it with an I, sometimes you find it with a Y. Sometimes you see it spelled with a B, as in Bob, Banyas. Now the reason is that it's sometimes called Banyas is because the, the letter P is not natural to the Arabic alphabet and, and language, and so all of the P's are pronounced as, as, as B. So if your granddad is Papa, in Arabic he would be Bapa. And, and that's why it's referred to as Banyas on most of the maps today. But in antiquity, and even in most places that uh, you find Christian, uh, Christians uh, going to these places, you find it referred to as Panyas or Panyas. And the reason for that is that it, it's, um, it, it's connected with, uh, with the Greek god Pan. Uh, to kind of give you an idea of, of the topography here and what's going on, uh, you have 
you have the Sea of Galilee down here. You have the Jordan River coming up to Lake Hula. And it goes all the way up into this area. There are three headwaters that come together to form the Jordan River. One of them comes out of Caesarea Philippi, or this place called Banyas, or this place called Panyas. And the Jordan River is formed up here in the north. Uh, you'll remember from your Old Testament that the tribe of Dan, when they were going into the land, they were in the land of the Philistines along the Mediterranean coast. They weren't able to drive the enemies out, and so they were forced up to the north, and they located in the area just to the west of Caesarea Philippi where you see the city of Dan that was part of the tribe of Dan. Now, the, the name Jordan is, is basically two words in Hebrew that are put together. The first one is jor or yor in Hebrew, which means down from, and then the last is Dan. So the Jordan River is the river that comes down from Dan. And as you can see, it's um, uh, right here, Caesarea Philippi and Dan are both at the foot of Mount Hermon. The peak is right up here. There's usually snow on top of that mountain year-round. But it, it's down here, uh, sort of at the southwestern slope of, of Mount Hermon. These are the headwaters that form the Jordan River. So as you go into Caesarea Philippi, one of the things that you see is the beginning of the Jordan River. In the time of Jesus in the first century, Caesarea Philippi would have looked like this. This, this right here was, uh, was the temple to Augustus. And in the back here, you see a drawing a, a, or a, a, a depiction of that cave that you saw in the very first slide, the cave that, uh, that had the title slide on it. That's this cave right here. Right here is the, uh, the, the, the court of Pan, and you have these two niches. Now, this is all rock. This is not dirt and grass. This is solid rock. It is, it is just a gigantic piece of, of rock that all of this has been carved out of, and these are two niches. Pan is the main god here, the, the secondary god is Echo. Echo uh, was sort of Pan's consort. In fact, in this little area right here, there's an inscription that says that, that Pan loves his consort, Echo. You have a temple of Zeus right here, of which some of the remains are still there. You have the, the temple of the dead goats right here, and then you have the temple of the dancing goats right here. Now, Pan... Is the, is the guy that is worshipped here. And what you, you know about uh, Pan is that uh, he's half man and he's half animal. His, his hindquarters or his legs are that of a goat. He has the body and the arms of a man, the face of a man, head of a man, but coming out of his forehead are what? Horns. And if you look at some of the ancient statues of, of Pan, he's kind of a scary individual. And so, because he is the god of the woods and of you know the the the, uh, the the you know the floral part of the earth and 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 the woods and the land and plants and all of this kind of stuff, people in the ancient world when they would walk through the forest, they were always a little bit afraid because they would run into Pan and he's a scary individual and he's a god that could not be trusted and you know he's got the horns and all of that going and that's where we get the word panic. It is the fear of running into Pan. That's how the word was, was first coined. It was the fear of running into Pan, and then we've adopted it into our own usage of being afraid of running into something that we don't want to run into. But Pan is the god there. As you know, he, he's, he's a god of, of, of rustic music. 
Uh, today we would say that he is the God of country and western. He is the God of the land. He is, the, he, he is a, a God of sexual immorality as well. And he's, and he's a frightening individual. And that's why people were afraid many times to go into the woods. They did not want to meet him. And he is the God that is associated with this area. This cave, which sat behind the temple of Augustus during the time of Jesus, was considered to be the, um, the gateway to hell. There was, uh, and Josephus writes about this, there is, uh, 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 during the time of Jesus, the, there was actually water that would flow out of this cave because of the, the uh, diminishing water supply in that part of the world. There's really only those headwaters and those streams that I showed you at the very beginning. But at one time, there, were, there, were, uh, uh, there was a water that was gushing out of this. And Josephus says, and you know, it's been tried many, many times, people have tried to find the bottom of this and have never been able to do it. And because it was considered to be bottomless and it had this endless shaft down into the center of the earth, it was considered to be the gateway to Hades or the gateway to the place of the dead or the, the gateway to hell. Uh, here is uh, more of a, you know, they don't want you to get too close to it because if you fall in, they'll never see you again. So they, they have it kind of cordoned off and uh, an earthquake not too long ago caused a gigantic piece of this to fall down into the middle of it. But it was a, it was a, it was a terrible place in antiquity. Um, these headwaters right here, or these wa- the, the, the streams coming out of the base of this mountain, uh, were a significant part of that cave. During the time of Jesus, uh, th- this place had always, had always been pagan. As you know, in the 3rd century B.C., uh, um, Alexander the Great had come down and conquered the Holy Land, uh, Palestine, and shortly after conquering it, he died. And then one of his generals, a fellow by the name, an Egyptian by the name of Ptolemy, had taken over the, you know, all of that area. And finally, the Ptolemies were defeated by the Seleucids in 198 B.C., in the area of Caesarea Philippi. And during this period of time, up until the time of Jesus, it was a place that was associated with tremendous paganism. The, the Seleucids were heavily, heavily, heavily into Hellenizing and to Greekifying all of these places. And, and Greek gods and all of this was introduced later on the Romans. There's Greco-Roman worship happening here with Pan as well. But this worship during the time of Jesus, um, there, was, there was an altar that was set up outside of this cave. And there were animals that were sacrificed, and then after they were sacrificed, they would be taken, and they were thrown into that cave, and then people would go rushing out to look at these waters. And if they saw blood coming out of the, out of the mountain where they had tossed this sacrifice, and they saw blood in that water, the, the sacrifice was not accepted. So they would do it again. And they would do it again and do it again and do it again until there was a sacrifice that was somehow was thrown into a place where it actually went underground in an underground stream and the blood did not travel outside of the mountain and then they, they believed it was accepted. Now, not only did they sacrifice animals here, but they also sacrificed human beings. And this is a place that the ancient world feared. It was, it was a place uh, where the god Pan and Echo, who were fearsome, to, to human beings. Uh, they were worshipped there. 
Uh, you know, if you've heard Randy Thompson in, in some of his teaching talk about the relationship between human beings and, and the gods of the ancient world, it was you, you didn't want them to look at you and pay attention to you because they might want to torture you, but at the same time you wanted them close enough to be able to bless you. So it was always kind of this tenuous relationship, and it was scary, and it sometimes involved even the loss of life in order to please them and to keep them from cursing you, but to get them to bless you. And so in this particular place, people were absolutely, when they walked up to Mount Hermon and they were in the region of Caesarea Philippi, they believed that they were in the area where the gates to the underworld were located. Again, here's another picture of those streams that people would try to find whether or not there was blood in the water to figure out whether or not that sacrifice had been accepted. Next to the Temple of Augustus and that cave, I told you that there's that little niche, the, uh, the, the court of, of Pan. This, uh, this place right here is a place where there were, you know, the, it was a niche carved into the stone. There was a, a little statue of Echo that was found here. There would be something you know, pertaining to, to Pan that would be in that niche right there. Here's kind of a, 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 you know, a, a different view from straight on of what that would have looked like. The, the courtyard in front of it would have been a place where people would have gathered and done whatever they had to do to, to please Pan. Uh, there are other niches that have, you know, they've been destroyed because of earthquakes and the crumbling of the wall, but there are these niches where you would stick idols all over the place. This would have been sort of the, the base of the temple to Zeus in this particular area. And as you can see, there are, you know, there's a lot of foundation stones. There are the remains of some columns and the capitals of columns that have been found. This is looking uh, basically from the area of the, t uh, the tomb of the, of, the, uh, of the dead goats, looking back towards that cave, and you can see that we're not, we're not talking about a gigantic area. The people in this picture kind of give you a little bit of perspective that, you know, the temple to Augustus, the temple to, uh, to Zeus were not huge, even though they would have been substantial because they wanted to please uh, both Augustus, who was the emperor of the world, and Zeus, who was king of the, of the gods. And here is the, the temple of the sacred goats. They would, you know, when the goats uh, uh, came to an end of, of use or to end of life, you know, I guess uh, their bones were stored here. Uh, what is significant to us about this text, though, is, or uh, this place, is this text in Matthew chapter 16. When you go to Caesarea Philippi from Capernaum, you're going to travel by foot in the time of Jesus 30 to 35 miles. And you're getting up towards the area of Lebanon, you're getting up into the area of Syria and, and, and Jordan, up in the northern part of Israel, and uh, you've, you've kind of gone up through the Golan Heights, you're at the foot of Mount Hermon, uh, you're not really in Israel territory in a way that makes you comfortable anymore. And Jesus, at the end of his ministry, takes his disciples up to this area in Matthew chapter 16. And you know the story. In verse 13, when Jesus comes to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asks his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And there was a reason that people were saying all of this, right? And we, we've studied those things before. There was a reason why they thought he was John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But he stops them there because Jesus is not far from making his trip to Jerusalem and not leaving Jerusalem until he's been crucified. 
And throughout all of his ministry, you remember that one of the things that he has done is to go to places and heal people. And he's done miracles. And, you know, the, he, you know these, these disciples have seen and heard everything that he has done for a little under three years. And these are the guys that he's going to entrust the expansion of the kingdom after his death. Now, they don't get all of that, as you know. But he takes them to this place where they're by themselves. And he asks who do people say that I am? They give him the answers that they're hearing. They, they have their ear to the ground and people are asking him questions when they can't get to Jesus. They'll ask the disciples, who, who is this guy really? Is he one of the prophets? Or, you know, who is this guy really? But Jesus asks, but who do you, speaking to the 12, who do you say that I am? And, and this is where Simon Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Now there's a little bit of significance there. Remember, who was Jonah? Jonah was the prophet that God sent to non-Jewish people, right? And he was supposed to tell them the truth about God and about God's will for their life. And this particular Jonah in the book of Jonah in the Old Testament was disobedient and he didn't catch the vision of God. Now Jesus has taken Simon... He's taken Peter and these disciples up into this place where Gentiles are surrounding them. And he reminds them that his name is Jonah. And it's this Peter that is going to be the apostles that is going to preach the first sermon of the gospel to Gentiles. And he says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and what? The gates of hell will not overcome it. So, so what's going on here? Well, you go back to Genesis chapter 3, and what you have is a human being on earth in the presence of evil. Eve is wandering around the garden doing whatever it is that Eve does when she's not with Adam in the garden. And she has this encounter with the serpent. And the serpent begins to question what it is that she really understands about God, what she really sees when she sees God. And he basically is convincing her that God does not have her best interests at heart. That she needs to take matters into her own hands. That yes, God has said you shall not eat of this fruit and you will die, but what God is really afraid of is that you're going to become a God too. And that really appeals to her. And why does it appeal to her? Why does, why does she listen to the serpent? That's the question, right? Everything, all of the bad stuff that happens in the world today always goes back to a question, why didn't Eve believe? And the reason is because she did not really see God. She did not really see God. Now, she saw God. God, when he would walk in the cool of the day through the garden in relationship with Adam and Eve, she saw him, but she didn't really see him. What she saw was, was, was greatness, but she didn't see the heart of God. She didn't see the power of God. The, the, the power, that the word that was powerful enough to create the heavens and the earth was not a word that was powerful enough to trust. 
And so everything in the world, in all of creation, that God created and He pronounced as tov in Hebrew as good, becomes undone and it becomes unraveled. We speed forward all the way to Matthew chapter 16, and it's found in Matthew and Mark and Luke. But you go to Matthew chapter 16, and here are some human beings who, in their mind, are in the presence of evil again. Now, the disciples are, are, are just are always a little discombobulated with Jesus. I mean, he's wanting them to cross over into the Decapolis, cross the, 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 the Sea of Galilee. He's putting them into storms. He just, just all of these things, and they're just always wondering, you know, what next, what next, what next? And he does something incredible by inviting them to go up into this part of the world and to go to Caesarea Philippi and to Banyas and, and the presence of evil and the gateway to hell. And he just stands there, and he asks him, who do you... Who do you say that I am? And what is fantastic about this passage is that Peter reverses everything that Eve did. He sees who Jesus is. He doesn't get all of it, obviously. But he sees that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And again, he's not going to get this whole cross thing. He'll get it later. But he sees far enough into Jesus to see what Eve never saw. That this is God. And Jesus says, blessed are you. You get it. And I'm going to build my church, my kingdom. All of this is going to be built. And guess what? The gates of hell, and when he said the gates of hell, their ears perked up because just right over there, the gates of hell. He said that confession, that, that recognition, that, that, that understanding is so profound that it will take hold of people's lives and it will, it will change people that even the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against it. And so all of a sudden, you know, you have in Genesis 3, you have evil, just sort of this onslaught of evil in the world because somebody did not see God. And then over here in Matthew 16, all of these years and years, thousands of years later, you have this human being who stands up and says, I see you. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of the living God. And everything that was started in human life because there was one who did not see God completely is now going to start to be undone in human life because they do see who Jesus really is. In the next chapter, it says six days later, and they're, they're wandering around in this area, just so that it just kind of gets confirmed in Peter's mind, and, and James and John go as well. And this is the reason why I don't think it's Mount Tabor. is because Mount Tabor is on the southwest end of the, the Sea of Galilee. It's, a, it's 11 miles away from that, and they're 30 miles some north of, of the Sea of Galilee. And just six days later, after they're, they're up there, he goes up on top of Mount Hermon. In Matthew chapter 17, he goes up on this mount close to Caesarea Philippi, Mount Hermon, and he transfigures himself. And Peter gets to see what it means for him really to be the Messiah, the Son of the living God. 
It's one of my favorite places in the entire world to be. Uh, I've been to Israel three times, and I always love coming to this place because it's the place where a human being got it right when he was asked, what do you really think about God? What do you really think about God? And obviously, you know, the gospel is going to include his trip down to Jerusalem and his, his death and his burial and his resurrection and his ascension and exaltation to happen. But this is where Jesus says, Peter, 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 you, <laughs> I'm blessed. You're so blessed. Not cursed. You're blessed because you really, really see. And, you know, the sight is one of the, the motifs in the entire Bible, right? It, you find it in the prophets. You find it in the ministry of Jesus. You know, everybody can see, but do you really see? Do you really see? Here are all these seeing people in John chapter 9 when they're at the pool of Siloam and the blind man is, is healed. All of the, the seeing people don't really see who Jesus is, but it's the blind man who says, you know, I once was blind, but now I see. And he's the one that falls down at the feet of Jesus. And so the question I want to I, I end with tonight as we get ready to sing an invitation song is this. Do you really believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God? Do you really see it? Do you really see it? And if you see it, it means that your life is different. It means that when you confess that Jesus is the Christ, and you, through faith, are participating in his life, his death and his burial and resurrection through, his, his, through, through baptism, then the reversal of all of that stuff that started in Genesis 3 begins in your life. God puts his spirit inside of you, and you are called to live as, as, as a, a, a replica, an icon of Jesus in this world. But if you've never seen until maybe tonight that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one that was sent in love to bring us back to God, to undo in our lives and in all of creation the evil that was begun because a servant said, do you really, really trust God? And the answer was no. If you're ready to make that good confession tonight and entrust to participate in the death, burial, and resurrection and baptism and, and, and to to live your life under the lordship of Jesus with his spirit as a part of indwelling in, in you, part of your life from here on out. We're going to have some shepherds down here at the front, and we're going to ask you to come down and talk to them as we stand and we praise God together. Wonderful story of love.